This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Christopher Joy, uh, mate, thanks very much for coming back on. I know how busy you are and, uh, you know, just wrapped to get some time with you. Uh, I thought before we get into the topics we're going to speak about, if you could start walking us through Coolabar Capital and what you guys specialise in. Yeah, mate, we run about $8 billion. Um, I have 36 staff. Um, we uh, uh, trade bonds and uh, offer fixed income solutions. Uh, so the team comprises uh, eight portfolio managers and <clears throat> 15 analysts. We have a strong quant focus. So we have um, uh, five PhDs in the team and probably about 12 quants in total. Um, three of those guys also have university medals. Um, we're the most active trader of Aussie bonds globally. So last year we traded uh, about $42 billion. Um, and that's pretty much it. We offer a, a range of retail <coughs> and wholesale solutions. Uh, recently, we've seen a huge bloodbath in bond markets. March was the worst month ever for bonds. In Australia, uh, the index was down 3.8%. I run <clears throat> 34 portfolios and 33 in March posted very strong positive returns. Um, and the only portfolio that didn't was actually an index tracker that tracks that index that blew up. Um, and we outperformed that index substantially. Uh, so since inception, all of our products are top decile, um, after fees, and I think pretty much top of the pops, pre-fees. But our edge is <clears throat> very much in terms of uh, or is founded in our intellectual uh, insight and our analytical capabilities, which I think are, are second to none, none in um, certainly in domestic fixed income. And we can talk more about that later. Now, I speak to quite a lot of guys that are in equities and... Um, you know, just brilliant at bottom-up analysis. And, you know, I know your fund's got a heavy quant focus, but you've also got a, a really strong depth of knowledge in geopolitical issues and, and war in particular. Uh, obviously, bond uh, yields and, and, and bonds are your special bit. Aussie house prices and, um, and what that looks like going forward. It's sort of the three topics I wanted to touch on today. And... To start with, I thought it'd be good to dive into the geopolitical issues we see around the world and a, a thought that Pippa Milgram's put forward, sorry, Pippa Milgram, along with some other commentators, particularly out of the US, that we're actually already in World War Three, and we have been for some time. It's just doesn't look the same as what the previous World Wars looked like. And what we're seeing in Ukraine is the first kinetic battle of, of World War Three. How, how does that sort of statement resonate with you at all? Well, a couple of years ago, I wrote an AFR column um, in which I said Cold War 2.0 has already arrived. So I think we've definitely got a new Cold War. Um, people were critical of me uh, when I wrote this. I'm just going to try and find it here. Yeah, so, so definitely Cold War 2.0. Uh, whether we're in a, a hot World War III, I don't think 
um, <clears throat> to be honest, that makes sense. But certainly we're, um, because we don't have kinetic conflict um, between the two major superpowers, um, you could argue that in Russia and the Ukraine, you know, it's a proxy war of sorts. Um, but this is something that we've been warning investors about for many years. I think, I mean, really, we're the only investor I know of that has been banging the table, warning of how military conflicts between major powers <clears throat> could create um, a lot of turbulence in markets. Um, so much so, mate, that last year in October, uh, we released a 26-page paper uh, and this website that anyone can go to. Uh, the website's called www predictingwar.com. So if you just go to uh, www.predictingwar.com, you can see it. <clears throat> and if we go to the uh, technical paper, we published this 26-page academic study in October last year um, that applies advanced statistical methods and um, also artificial intelligence uh, to try and do something pretty simple. And that is just to predict what is the probability of two countries going to war. Now, the way we do that is we've taken 160 years of data on all the military conflicts around the world over the last century or two. And then we've taken all the, the causal uh, drivers. Uh, so the features of the nation states that end up uh, involved in <clears throat> uh, kinetic and other types of conflicts. So their economic data, their political data, social and demographic data. And we put that into big models. And the models actually have <clears throat> very high explanatory power. And so I can select in this system, this is, this is a, a front-end user interface that anyone in the world can access. Uh, and this attracted a lot of attention. It was covered by Sky News and the Australian the AFR when we released it. But, for example, the one limitation, I should say, of this analysis is it ends in 2020. So our models don't have the benefit of any of the, the huge increase in conflict noise that we've had in the last two to three years. Um, and the models put the probability of um, <clears throat> a kinetic conflict between the US and China at 45.4%. And if we look at, um, for example, you know, Taiwan and China, the models uh, handicap that probability at 74%. And that's before the more recent escalation in the activities or tensions. And you can see that's been trending up over time. But this, this war is a, this is a hot kinetic war. Like if someone were to say, Correct. attack yeah. something in space that was owned by a foreign country. Yeah, it has a very precise academic definition. We actually model different conflict severities yeah. and we model different time horizons. But this includes <clears throat> basically the, the start of a... Uh, a bona fide kinetic conflict, uh, including the declaration of war, right? Yeah. Now, if we go to Russia and the Ukraine, again, we didn't have the benefit. This is uh, this data is basically three years old. Um, if we look at Russia and the Ukraine, um, it looks like the probability is pretty low, but there are a couple of things here. Um, <clears throat> the probability is actually very high. So this is saying, there's a one in, this was saying as at 2020, there was a one in four to one in five chance Russia and the Ukraine could declare war against one another over the next 10 years. 
So that's actually a really, really high probability. If you take a country like, um, you know, a crazy example, let's look at Australia versus New Zealand, as much as I love my, uh, my investors <laughs> across the ditch, you'll be very happy to know that probability is basically zero. <laughs> There's a little blip there. The, uh, it's World War II. What was that? What was that bowling incident? <laughs> the underarm, the, the Trevor, uh, Trevor Chapel underarm incident. <laughs> yeah. So if we go back to Russia and the Ukraine, there was a one in four to one in five chance uh, that these guys could end up uh, in a kinetic um, war. But the other thing is our models are a little bit hamstrung for the Ukraine because unlike <clears throat> um, you know the US and China. The Ukraine was actually only created in 1994. Yeah. So whereas with you know, the US and China, we have hundreds of years of data. You can see this is 1900. This is the probability of conflict here. And it's sort of been trending higher over time. Um, we don't have that. that we, the data only starts in 94 for, for the Ukraine. So the point of this work, this, this is actually the first research, and we can look at uh, you know, things called a, a conflict matrix. So this is the probability of different countries attacking one another. Um, you know, over certain time intervals and certain severities. And we can actually do some pretty cool stuff where we explore this data. Um, and for example, uh, <clears throat> we can look at, uh, if we go back in time, um, we can look at the, let me just try and play with this. Uh, yeah. And then, so we can look at, for example, the probability of um, different types of political systems. So the shaded blue here is a democracy, um, having conflicts with other, uh, other democracies and so on and so forth. So all of this stuff we create in-house. And the simple point of this analysis was um, <clears throat> it's actually the first time globally, to the best of our knowledge, Chris, that anyone has ever produced research that uses hard empirical data on the history of conflicts to actually give people equally objective empirical probabilities of the risks of wars occurring between different countries. And what was the advice to investors with, with, with war risk elevated? What was it, buy gold and, and fund managers that can go long and short bonds? Yeah, so in late 2021, um, uh, so we published this research in October 2021. Yeah. Um, but, but just to skip to that particular point, I'll just go to a presentation I have in late 2021, we had really clear views on uh, where we thought the world was heading. We published this paper in October uh, with ASPI, which is the <clears throat> Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the top defence think tank in Asia, um, outlining our research. Um, people probably thought we were warmongers. In fact, I had a client that said, oh, you're being a warmonger. Like, you know, this, this stuff can't happen. Of course, it has happened, sadly. Um, we in, in late last year, we also um, warned investors about investing in bonds issued out of China or Russia explicitly. So I wrote in the AFR and um, in Livewire that New South Wales should stop lending money to Russia and China. <clears throat> we have a principle in our portfolios that we only invest in bonds issued by companies or states that um, are based in or are democracies. Um, so we have what we call a democratic criterion. Again, I'm not aware of any other investor globally that had applied that principle, but it's a pretty simple one. Um, but coming to late last year, <clears throat> our advice to investors was the market's got everything wrong. So this was on the right-hand side of articles that I wrote in December, on December 23rd, and on the 7th of January, and then on the next slide here, 
on the 14th of January and the 21st of January. Um, and basically we were saying, Chris, uh, that we thought a few, a few things um, needed to be uh, reassessed. The market at that time was saying the Fed was only going to raise rates three times this year. Mm -hmm. So this is in December last year. We said that's BS. We said the, the Fed's going to have to hike at least six to seven times. Now the market's pricing in eight and a half hikes from the Fed. Mm -hmm. um, as a consequence of that, we said the much higher interest rates you'll see next year will be high discount rates. And those discount rates <clears throat> mechanically reduce the value of all risky cash flows. So we said you really want to be um, short equities, short property, short crypto. Um, and I, apologies if you guys are crypto fans. Uh, and a short credit spread. So we were negative on our own asset class and short something called duration. Yeah. Basically short everything um, because our argument was this. Uh, equity is going to get smoked. One, yeah. we said this repeatedly. This is in December last year. Crypto is going to get smoked because crypto is just an equity proxy. And if equity goes, equity goes down, <clears throat> Bitcoin will go down with it. The correlation between Bitcoin and the S&P 500 is about 80% right now. And... Um, and we said long-term interest rates are going to spike. Why? Because we argued that inflation uh, would be a persistent problem. And um, we were looking for the global price of money, which is the 10-year government bond, government bond yield in the US. Uh, in December last year, it was just 1.3%. Mm. And we argued that needs to go back to 2018 levels, above 3%. <clears throat> and we argued that that would... Um, Basically, again, force equities lower, force credit spreads wider. Now, credit spreads moving wider would hurt floating rate bonds. But most importantly, those long-term interest rates rising would hurt fixed rate bonds. And one technical term people use to describe uh, fixed rate bond risk, whether it's government bonds or a fixed rate bo uh, bank bond, is something called duration. Yeah. So we were super negative. You can see here we wrote, we're negative all these things. We've argued rates have to rise much more uh, rapidly than the market expects. And all of that has come to pass, right? So we have seen uh, in Q1, peak to trough, S&P 500 fell 12%. NASDAQ was down 20. <clears throat> I think Bitcoin was uh, down 30 to 40%. Um, fixed rate bonds have been destroyed. So um, I have a slide here. Uh, March, as I mentioned, March this year, was the single worst month for fixed rate bonds in uh, 33 years. Uh, and also floating rate credit got destroyed. So what, to answer your question, well, what was the solution? The solution we advocated last year was a fewfold, and you basically called it pretty well, Chris. Um, you know, what we wanted to do is we want to get long cash. USD in particular or cash full stop? I just long, yeah, I mean, in, in, in a perfect world, yes, you'd be long USD cash yeah. because the Fed's going to be ahead of everybody else. Yeah. Um, uh, but in long cash, uh, we wanted to be short credit, which is what we did. Uh, so we got short uh, credit in Aussie bonds, US bonds, and Euro bonds. So we were short selling um, <clears throat> corporate and bank bonds in those markets. And we also put on huge credit hedges. Um, so basically synthetic credit hedges a little bit hard to explain, but long story short, um, it's called buying credit, de uh, credit default swaps on um, specific credit indexes in the US and US. 
Um, so we bought about $4 billion of credit hedges. Uh, we short sold about 1.6 billion of, um, <clears throat> sorry, 4.1 billion, yeah, of credit hedges and about $1.6 billion of credit shorts. Um, and we kept our interest rate risk at zero years. So we've had no interest rate risk. And our only long position has really been state government bonds where we hedged the rates risk. <clears throat> Both state government bonds have been the best performing credit asset class globally in February and March. And on our shorts, we've made a lot of money. So if I just show you, this chart is a screenshot from our systems and every uh, black dot is us buying back or covering a short. And this is the return axis, this is time. And the red dotted line is uh, the zero return line. So we've monetized 1.6 billion of shorts since late last year. <clears throat> we made money 88% of the time. Uh, we did this in Aussie, US and Euro credit. And our IRR was about 10.5% per annum annualized on the 1.6 billion. Uh, that was one, I guess, negative position we had. The other negative was the synthetic credit shorts. So this is using the credit indices. And <clears throat> we monetized 4.1 billion of synthetic shorts. Uh, we made money 76% of the time. The IRR wasn't quite as high, it was 3.2% annualized. But for a fixed income investor that's only targeting one to 2% of the cash, you know, that, that's actually a pretty bloody attractive number. Um, so those positions have worked really well for us. Um, and yeah, gold, listen, I don't know any about gold, mate, but if, if you were to ask me in December, I, I was saying sell equities, sell crypto, monetize your property, your resi real estate, um, if you can. Long cash, get short all those asset classes I talked about. So short duration, short credit, short equities. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, and the only asset we liked was state government bonds, which we um, we bought a lot of and which have performed really well. I think gold makes a perfect sense. Um, you know, I think what we've seen, the price of gold, you know, crypto was sold as an inflation hedge. Mm. It is nothing of the sort. It's got destroyed at the slightest sense of an inflation problem. Uh, crypto was sold as a diversifier against equities. Again, it's been perfectly correlated with equities. Uh, gold is actually... Uh, that, that that staple that has ostensibly, I think, I mean, you probably know much more about gold than me, Chris, but it seems to have actually performed really well as a an inflation and uh, uh, an equity hedge in this in this very volatile period. I mean, but if I'm wrong, you, you know, feel free to correct me, buddy. No, no, it's done well, and, and, and commodities more broadly. I mean, I, look, it's 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 happened. So we we know it's happened. But yeah, gold's held up well. Commodities have held up really well, and and generally businesses that are in the value camp, listed equities have done much better than growth, which is, is more closely aligned to the duration issues with, with long-term bonds. But if, if we're going to look forward then, you mentioned the, the consensus now is that the Fed's going to raise eight to nine times uh, over the next 12 months. Do you think that can happen without them really causing some serious carnage? I'll call it on equity markets at a level where all of a sudden they worry about you know, the jobs market being, being negatively impacted? Well, our view has been that, you know, we're looking for um, quite large equity drawdowns, firstly. And what, what percentage do you reckon the Fed starts to take notice? If equities drop 30%, do you think they start to go, well, we've got to shore this yeah, up? Yeah, I, th I think, I think uh, well, <clears throat> put it this way, equities fell 12 to 20% in Q1. We were targeting in Q1 a 5 to 15% drawdown in equities. We have said publicly that we think equities could pull back 30 to 60%. Uh, 
this is late last year. Um, I don't believe that as long as inflation is way above the core targets uh, for the Fed, I don't believe in the so-called Fed put option. And that's what we've argued. So, you know, I wrote in early January um, <clears throat> that the uh, that we thought that the Fed put option had expired. So here on the 7th of January, I wrote, <clears throat> I wrote that. And then on the, um, uh, yeah, in January as well, I said, you know, I think we, we, it's reasonable to assume equities return to their pre-pandemic peaks. I think the problem you have is that if you look at for the S&P 500, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, I'll just actually pull up a chart of this. So this is the problem. This is Robert Schiller's cyclically adjusted PE ratio, and this is as at um, you know, Monday, April 11, and it's sitting at 36 times up here. Mm. And the only other time we've been here is just before the tech wreck in you know, 2000. And you know, the mean, the average is 17, the median 16. So I think this, this for me, um, <clears throat> this acceleration has is all been post-GFC. So this is TechRec, this is GFC, and this is all post-GFC. And for me, this is all money printing, QE, low rates for long, um, you know, and perpetually cheap money. What do you think the flatness of the curve is telling us over there in the States? Well, you, Chris, I want to ask your answer, your original question, but we'll come to that. But I think, um, I think mate, on equities, I would say a few things. Like, I think Powell's a pretty tough Fed chair. He got the cash rate to 2.5%, mate, from... So they were basically at zero in 2015-16, and he lifted it up to 25 without much hesitation in 2018. So we're going back to 25 to 3 as fast as they can. And, you know, he wasn't really perturbed by the 10 to 20% drawdown in equities in the US. Um, I think at 20 to 30, you know, they start to think about things, but... The other problem they have, and I'll just pull up another chart on this, which is, I think, a really good way of explaining things. The Fed is not just targeting um, inflation uh, and the interest rates. Uh, it's actually targeting something called a financial conditions index. What is an FCI? Basically, think about uh, they're targeting the cost of debt, so the cost of borrowing and the cost of equity, and they combine those things together. And the Fed talks about this FCI all the time. And they are widely believed to kind of run policy according to um, you know, their, their FCIs. And in this chart, the lower the FCI, which is this line I'm about to show you, this white line, the lower this white line, the more stimulatory <clears throat> Fed policy is. So uh, this is 100. This is where we are right now. And this is where we have been since 2010, right? If I go back to 2000, yeah, so since 2000, you know, you can see that we probably averaged around 100. And, and the, this is Goldman Sachs's financial conditions index, which is the best in the market. And really, he is saying, the Fed are telling us, Chris, he wants to get this 98 number probably up to 100. Mm -hmm. And this index has only a few things in it. It has the 10-year government bond yield. It has... Uh, the Fed cash rate, <clears throat> it has credit spreads, and it has equities, the cost of equity capital. So what you need to understand about the Fed is to get this number up to here, the cost of equity has to go up, and that means equity prices have to fall. 
the Fed wants to see equities fall, right? Now, if equities fall 50, <clears throat> are they going to pause? Almost certainly, right? So there will be some uh, interdependencies. There will be circularity and interdependencies. But what I would say, mate, is they're going to go to 25 to 3%. Um, the good news for equity investors is that's now priced. So that is in the market price, uh, a Fed terminal cash rate of 25 to 3 Interest rate markets are assuming the Fed gets to 25 to 3%. Mm -hmm. The US 10-year government bond yield, late last year, I mentioned it was sitting at 1.3. We've said it needed to go 3 plus. It's now at 2 point, almost 8, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the fixed income markets have got the, the writing on the wall. If you look at those cyclically adjusted PEs, equities look massively expensive to me personally. <clears throat> we don't really trade equities often, so I'm not an equity expert, but it does look like you know, one of the great shorts that, that you know, are, are out there. So personally, I'm pretty bloody bearish on equities. Having said that, I want to say one point. I've shown you that we've had almost $6 billion of shorts in play since November last year. I've shown you that data. Mm -hmm. We took all our shorts off in mid-March because I felt that the Fed, oh, sorry, the markets would rally through that March Fed meeting. And I think there is a preternatural buy-the-dip reflex in equities. <clears throat> and, you know, people haven't seen massive drawdowns in equities. I mean, even in March 2020, Aussie stocks only fell 20, 30%. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there's quite a lot of brain damage that has yet to, been yet to be inflicted on equity investors. Um, and, I, I, you know, our view was at risk and rally, but it does, and, and that's been true <clears throat> since mid-March. So equities have rallied. But... Yeah, last night I put 200 million US. Um, I started working at 2.30 a.m. unfortunately this morning. So if I'm lacking any lucidity, that's why. <laughs> but, but last night I put 200 million US of new credit shorts on. So we're just starting to build some of those shorts back up. Um, <clears throat> I'm not super bearish risk here and now. So I want to be very clear. I'm bearish risk medium term, by which I mean equities, property. Uh, you know, we, we said in October last year, that we thought house prices would rise another 5% or so, uh, but that the RBA would lift the cash rate by more than 100 basis points uh, <clears throat> starting this year. And when that happened, house prices would fall 15 to 25%. So short term, I was positive on housing, but you know I'm quite negative housing only after the RBA raises rates. Um, and, and for equities right now, I'm kind of probably neutral to negative in the next month or so. The key thing for us to think about as investors, Chris, you and I, is what are going to be the next big catalysts? The big catalyst this year for us was the market moving from pricing three hikes to seven or more, mm -hmm. and that's happened. Mm -hmm. So that's out there. Mm. I kind of feel equities should be much lower now. Um, but they've copped a bit of a beating. Certainly global equities have copped a beating. Um, I think the next big catalyst I'm thinking about, maybe, and I'm happy to share with your viewers, is a US recession. Mm. Now, the good news is uh, my chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, who's one of my 35 or 36 um, execs, has just on LiveWire today um, published um, a new research piece quantifying this so if you scroll down on this page um, here and you can see that it was um, 
it was actually posted nine hours ago. So it was posted pretty uh, early uh, this morning. But basically what we find is uh, looking at the relationship between the US 10-year government bond yield and three-month treasury bills, he finds that the um, risk of a recession in the US uh, rises to about 34% by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that probability, that one-third probability of a US recession, uh, he makes the point that you almost always get recessions um, when, when the probabilities reach that level. So I think this is a long-winded way. What we're seeing here in this chart is um, this is that relationship, this dark blue line here between US 10-year yields and three-month yields, yeah. um, which, is, which is here. And this is the relationship between US 10-year yields and two-year yields. And <clears throat> this is looking historically at the probabilities um, uh, of, of recession. So this is the probability here. And the gray lines are where we've had actual recessions. So the point here is this model has been really good at picking US recessions. You can see we get spikes almost always when you get recessions. Uh, <clears throat> there are some false positives, but not too many. There's a, you know, a couple of false positives here and maybe uh, one here, but that was a precursor to this one. So my point is, I think for risk, the next big event will be the Fed hiking cycle potentially pushing the US economy into recession. And I think that could be the catalyst for um, uh, equities really rolling over quite aggressively. And I guess what would be different to that scenario to, you know, the GFC or the the COVID recession is that neither of those happened when we had inflation. So the reaction function of just printing and, and pushing bond yields down and stimulating the economy was, I guess, for the central bank is an easier decision than it would be in the current environment where we've got commodity prices on a tear, you know, rents, cost of living increasing significantly. I think they labelled it Putin's price hike recently <laughs> and blamed, uh, you know, the inflation all on um, recent events in Ukraine. Uh, so what will the reaction function be? Do you think they'll have yield curve control or, or how would they tackle that recessionary environment when they're dealing with inflationary pressures? Well, mate, you've just absolutely nailed it. I mean, that's, that's what we've been arguing. Um, actually, for about 10 years, <clears throat> we have said that the, the, the print uh, money to infinity or QE to infinity policy reflex of just bailing out economies by having um, <clears throat> cash rates put, pushed down to 0% and then getting central banks to print money and buy everything that moves to bid up the price of everything, that framework worked really well um, in the GFC and since the GFC, uh, <clears throat> every time there was a shock, Grexit 1, Grexit 2, Brexit, you know, every time you know, the pandemic, obviously, <clears throat> arguably the most extreme example. Um, but as you rightly point out, over that period, we had disinflation, or very low levels of inflation. And now we're in a completely new regime. And we've argued for a decade, Chris, that this, this um, QE to infinity reflex was always going to end in an inflationary cycle because it's true by definition. It's tautological because the politicians and the central banks can't help themselves. And <clears throat> if you just keep on stimulating and stimulating, eventually, um, uh, you know, it's like you're blowing a, a balloon uh, and you reach the limits of the balloon and it's going to burst and create those price pressures. 
So <clears throat> that's what we've seen. We've seen a series of supply side shocks, firstly with the pandemic, now with the Ukraine, through wheat prices, oil, gas, you know, uh, coal, and so forth. Um, you know, amazingly, Australia is a huge beneficiary. Mm. So all of our export prices have gone through the roof. Uh, so we're one of the few countries that really benefit from what's happened <clears throat> in Europe. Um, uh, but but that's just another supply side shock. And then you've got excess demand clearly, demonstrably, because we've had too much fiscal stimulus and too much monetary stimulus. And that's showing up in you know crazy economic variables. Mm. So unfortunately, yesterday, um, our putative prime minister, uh, Albanese, was asked the question, you know, what's the RBA's cash rate? He didn't know the answer to that question amazingly. I, I just can't imagine how you wouldn't know what the RBA's interest rate was, uh, and he was also asked, what's Australia's unemployment rate? Now, everyone knows it's 4.0%, but he said it, he thought it was 5.4%. Now, we haven't seen that level of unemployment since the GFC or the pandemic. And um, so <clears throat> what we have in most countries around the world is really low unemployment rates, and that is manifesting in the form of really high wages growth. And that wages growth is um, showing us that we have excess demand and that's why the Fed and the RBA and everybody else is suddenly doing 180s and trying to normalise interest rates. Unfortunately, what people need to understand, let me put it this way. In mid-2019, the RBA cash rate, Anthony Albanese, was 1.50%. As a result of the pandemic, the RBA cut that to 0.1%. Mr. Albanese. Um, Now, that basically drove a 31 plus percent increase in house prices. You cut mortgage rates by 150 basis points. People can afford to buy more expensive homes and it gets capitalized into prices. The RBA is going to be moving quickly back to one and a half percent. So there's going to be some payback. And that's why we're saying house prices after the first 100 basis points of hikes will probably correct. It's not going to be Armageddon. It'll be orderly. But we're going to give back some of those capital gains just because purchasing power will shrink. And we'll probably give back um, you know, 15 to 25% nationally, uh, possibly less if wage growth is really strong. So in, in some ways, if we can uh, really boost wage growth across Australia, that income growth over time will make housing more affordable and it will mean that less adjustment in valuations needs to come through prices. Um, <clears throat> but, but, uh, but I think your key point, so I, this is a massive, another sort of digression, but, but your key point, Chris, was that um, in the next recession, it's going to be different. And this is, this is true and profound as well. And you need to understand this, viewers. So in every other downturn for the last decade plus, we've been bailed out. Zero rates and governments buy everything, equities go go up, house prices boom, and we all feel, oh, they splash us with cash. So we get handouts left, right and centre. So we literally get mailed money to our bank accounts and we feel rich. We've had the highest household saving rates in history of late. It's not going to be like that next time around. If we have high inflation, if we are genuinely in 
an inflation crisis, which is nobody knows, but I would say it's a reasonable probability that that is what is unfolding right now. And if we have a bona fide wage price spiral, which again seems to be unfolding certainly in the US, then rates are going to have to go much higher than people expect and they're going to have to stay high for a long time. And <clears throat> we may have, uh, you know, history rhymes, we may have a repeat of the 1991 recession, the you know, Kiddings recession we had to have. And the reason, many of you are probably too young to remember this, but <clears throat> the reason uh, Keating said we had to have a recession in 91 was he argued um, that we needed high interest rates to crush inflation. And that's what they did. You know, the RBA's uh, well, mortgage rates went up to uh, north of 17% in, in 91. Um, and <clears throat> what this means is, and this is, I think, the profound point, uh, there are vast swathes of our economy that have been uh, predicated on the low rates for long paradigm. Mm. And, you know, some, sometimes we refer to these uh, entities as zombie businesses. There's a technical definition. We, we track these things live in our systems. But the technical definition is a company <clears throat> that is not generating enough profitability that is sufficient to cover the interest payments on um, uh, their debts. And by some estimates, 15 to 20% of all listed companies in Australia and the US are zombies. Now, these are we're talking about repaying the interest on debts right now where interest, interest rates are still at like 5,000-year lows. So God help these companies when <clears throat> interest rates soar as they are, are guaranteed to do. And I think what happens is we have to have some sort of technical recession and there needs to be a, an adjustment where the bad businesses uh, are allowed to fail and good businesses replace them over time. Effectively, we're going to have to rewire and re-engineer the economy, Chris, um, to get rid of all the zombie businesses and replace them with businesses that can survive and thrive in a very um, survive and thrive in a very. Uh, sorry, I just got allocated three hundred fifty million dollars in a bond deal. So I just, <laughs> just, uh, uh, I just, uh, if you don't believe me, uh, I just. Uh, uh, so Matt, Matt, he just kisses this. He just says $350 million allocation. Wow. So I'll just stop that share. But anyway, so that was a bit distracting. Yeah, the next recession, mate, which we all need to prepare for, and your portfolio construction needs to be stress tested for this sort of downturn, is just going to be super different to prior recessions if and only if this inflation puzzle is indeed a persistent and protracted one. That, that, that's the key point, mate. What, what about the view, and I think it's Lynn Olden's wording, which I, I really like, uh, that there's so much debt in the system. You know, look at government debt to GDP in the US of 122% versus when Volcker started raising rates of being 25%. It's a very different environment to the last time we saw significant inflation. That central banks will have to make the choice that we either die by fire or we die by ice. We, they either cause an a deflationary bust with the amount of debt that is rolling around in the system or we die metaphorically by inflation and history says they choose fire. Um, you know, no one defaults if they don't have to. Do you think that's a choice that is, is going to have to be made by central banks like the US? Yeah, I think once again, you've nailed it, mate. And, um... But that would mean they'd stay far behind the curve, wouldn't they? They'd let inflation run hot and that's really how they 
repay the debt in, in real terms by letting this inflation run hotter than what we'd expect and being behind the curve for longer. Yeah, and this is for a decade we've always argued that the central bankers will be very loose with monetary policy because it suits them to try and inflate their way out of fixed nominal debts. But the reality is we've got wages running north of 5% of the US. We've got core inflation running north of 5% of the US. Inflation expectations uh, at those levels as well. We've never seen that triumvirate uh, since the 1980s. Mm. And, and we've never seen debt levels like this ever. Mm. So you have an unprecedented um, concoction or coincidence of super high inflation with super high debt levels. What that means is that the economy sensitivity or elasticity elasticity to rate changes will be much, much higher. And <clears throat> again, our old mate Charlie Jamison trots this argument out, arguing that you know we won't be able to sustain significant rate hikes for long. And I'm sympathetic to that point of view, um, but I still think they're going to charge higher mm. and they're probably going to discover the system is, is much more sensitive than they thought it was, which just means a deeper recession uh, and more savage asset price declines. Um, and then it will kind of have to reverse its way out. But, but to be clear, this time around, they're going to have to wait for inflation to normalise and mean revert and be comfortable that inflation expectations are anchored and that wages growth is sustainable before they cut rates. So I don't think we're going to see the, you know, the, the dramatic you know, 180 degree returns uh, that we have seen since the GFC where you know, things are uh, you know, slashed to zero, the QE printing press comes out, they buy everything, it's happy days. Um, I think that the central banking, I think you'll hear a lot more about the recession we had to have. I bet you that becomes, I've not said this before, but I bet you that becomes uh, you know, a uh, characterization that is in vogue again because it, it will be the rationalization. The central bankers will say, well, we needed a correction to um, normalize inflation. Um, and, and listen, it won't be a bad thing because the, the reality is there are a lot of businesses today that are not built to survive in a high interest rate climate. And by, by high interest rate climate, we're not talking about, I mean, one thing to stress here that the, you know, the average RBA cash rate since 1993 is, I'm guessing, and probably uh, around uh, north of 4%. And we're talking about getting the cash rate, like I think the RBA cash rate is going to struggle to get above 1.5%. Now, the RBA is saying it, it thinks it should get to 2.5%, um, <clears throat> to 3.5%. And the financial market is saying the RBA is going to lift its cash rate to 3%. Now, <clears throat> can you imagine a 300 basis point increase in mortgage mm -hmm. rates? So mortgage rates going from like, you know, if you've got a variable rate 2% now, to 5%, or if you've got a fixed rate from, you say, 3 to 6%, there is no way on God's earth we can absorb that sort of interest rate shock. So I think Australia's a little bit different. We don't have massive wage growth. We don't have a huge inflation crisis. I think the RBA is going to increase interest rates. I think it'll be steady and measured. Um, the cash rate will go to 125 to 150. That will be a substantial interest rate shock. House prices will start falling. Now, the housing market is not the equity market. The housing market is the single largest source of household wealth. And the RBA is very sensitive to the housing market. So there is kind of, I think, going to be a, um, uh, a, a low put, a feel low put, in the sense that I think that once he sees house prices fall more than 10%, um, <clears throat> they'll, they'll pause uh, the rate hiking cycle to see how the economy is coping with that high debt servicing um, uh, burden. Uh, and, um, but whereas in the US, it's very different. They mostly have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. So the US housing market is less sensitive to interest rate changes, which basically incents the uh, Fed to go long and strong. So to get the cash rate to 25 to 3% quickly, 
US house prices will roll over slowly, probably more slowly than they have or will in Australia. I think Australia, most of our, probably about 70% of our debt is variable rate. Historically, about 85% of our debt is variable rate. So it's not fixed rate. And our fixed rate debt is short-term fixed rate. The other thing about Australia is um, post the pandemic, everyone took out fixed rate home loans. I'm sure you've got one. I've got one. I've got, a, I think, a four-year loan at 2%. <clears throat> now, a lot of these fixed rate loans mature uh, between now and late next year. And I think CBA estimates 500 billion of fixed rate loans will roll over and they'll roll into much more expensive rates that will result in interest rate increases of between 75 and 100 basis points. So you've got a double whammy there. You've got the RBA increasing borrowing rates on all new loans and existing variable rates. <coughs> and then you've got this tsunami of fixed rate loans that are rolling over that the RBA will be increasing the cost of capital on very sharply as well. So all roads lead to, I think, the RBA engineering um, a very, very soft landing in Australia. I don't expect any recession in Australia. I think the Fed, on the other hand, they have a bona fide wage price spiral. And I think we've got real inflation um, risks that they're going to have to combat with much higher interest rates, which could ultimately precipitate a US recession. The Russian euro dollars that got confiscated, um, this to me felt, you know, $600 billion worth of, of euro dollars confiscated by, what was it, Japan, Europe, you know, instructed from the US. Uh, that to me felt like the biggest financial event since Bretton Woods system stopped, uh, you know, ceased in 1971. Was it as significant from your perspective going forward and, and will it change how central banks and governments around the world hold this and allocate their savings? Yeah, I think it was massive. And I think it's the first time we've seen the West really, <clears throat> you know, galvanised into a coordinated agent uh, and uh, aligned opposition force vis-a-vis -vis a major superpower, superpower since the, the first Cold War. Um, and it's really interesting to see how it actually unfolded. If you just go back to the genesis of that event, um, you know, initially in the Russia-Ukraine war, the headlines were that the Russians were going to take Kiev within a day or two <clears throat> and they were steamrolling through the country and this was you know, basically a fait accompli. And you might recall all the Western nations uh, were offering these very limp, weak sanctions and, you know, it was a lot of rhetoric and posturing about their opposition and how outrageous this was, but they were basically not going to do anything about it. And then these magnificent, you know, incredibly courageous Ukrainians uh, in a true uh, David Goliath-like battle managed to very successfully resist and ultimately repel you know, what was alleged to be one of the world's most powerful militaries. Um, and that Ukrainian resistance, for me, was a lightning rod <clears throat> for galvanising the rest of the world. Suddenly you had the whole world come together uh, and do a whole, a whole bunch of things that they'd never done before. So uh, we've never seen more comprehensive and coordinated sanctions against another major nation state uh, you know, since uh, the Second World War. And... Um, and we've effectively economically isolated and ostracised uh, the Russian economy, but also uh, the Russian um, uh, in a government and, and Putin himself in, I think, a very, very highly effective manner. Now, importantly, this has significant corollaries for China because if pa uh, Putin had swept through uh, Ukraine um, successfully as everyone expected him to, um, this would have established an incredibly important precedent for 
China vis-a-vis Taiwan. And people in China in the first 24 to 48 hours <clears throat> were saying exactly that. He, you know, Putin has rolled out the playbook. Um, now, we, we, our analysis, we have six global geopolitical and military experts on our payroll, uh, including former heads of intelligence agencies. And our analysis was that Putin's super smart. He's been incredibly successful. He's not a madman at all. Um, <clears throat> he's never really made a mistake before. And this is a classic case of hubristic overreach. So one of the reasons we uh, cut our shorts in mid-March was we thought uh, he would basically start looking for what we call um, a partially face-saving off-ramp. And that's what he's done. <clears throat> and actually more aggressively than we predicted. So he's retreated quite rapidly out of Kiev uh, and he's looking for very clearly <clears throat> an exit strategy. So the, the precedent, though, is twin-bladed. For the West, they've actually seen how they can bring to bear quite incredible uh, intellectual, commercial, legal, regulatory and financial firepower to crush a nation state out of existence or more or less, right? Um, <clears throat> Putin only cares about two things, money and power, and they were basically denying him access to both. Clearly, there was some, uh, you know, uh, uh, money laundering through crypto that the Russians would have availed themselves of. Um, but that, over time, those, those avenues, I think, will be cauterized by regulators. So I think it's a hugely important geopolitical precedent um, in the context of Cold War 2.0. When We don't have a hot World War Three yet, but we do have uh, a Cold War 2.0 and we are on the cusp of World War III. There's no doubt about that in terms of having non-trivial probabilities of seeing that sort of event materialise. If you're a government, you've got excess savings and you've got to buy commodities in USD and you've traditionally held those excess savings in US treasuries, you just wouldn't do it now, would you? When you're given the number of countries over the journey of time who've had some sort of disagreement with the US that potentially puts those treasuries at risk, wouldn't it... You know, does it mean going forward that there's just a much greater allocation to alternative assets because those treasuries are seen to carry a far higher risk than they did perhaps before those euro dollars were seized a month ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's also a profound point. So uh, if we think through that, I think there are swings and roundabouts. On the one hand, if you're a, uh, you know, um, a good corporate citizen, an open, uh, you know, Western liberal democracy um, then I think for the which and the Western liberal democracies democracies are generally those that control most of the global um, capital. Uh, I think there'll be massive diversification away from reserves issued by non-democratic states. So, for example, China, Russia have been lazy longs for reserve diversification. So, holding rubles and uh, lots of other um, currencies around the world in sort of questionable countries. I think we're seeing now a huge exodus, and this is what we've been calling for through our democratic criterion, which is part of our ESG overlay. Um, I think you'll see a massive exodus of Western capital out of China uh, and out of non-democratic states. And I think you'll see central banks do the same thing. So they're going to dump, I think, their Chinese reserves uh, and obviously their Russian reserves. Um, uh, but on the other hand, if... You're a non-democratic. If you're a non-democratic country, um, you need to hedge against the risk that you articulated. Which, whatever you diversify into, you need to be cognizant of the fact that you could be denied access to those reserves yourself uh, in the event that the West unilaterally um, you know, has, disagrees with you over a, a specific, um, you know, major major issue. 
Uh, and so I think that so it, 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 they're, they're two different forces. You've got a huge pool of money that's going to pull out of like, you know, we've seen Japan, for example, seemingly pivoting away from Eastern Europe and Europe generally just because of the huge macro risk into Australia and into the US. So I think you'll get a, a massive flight to perceived safety and Australian assets. So Aussie state government bonds, for example, um, which generally trade as a spread to Commonwealth bonds have been a real safe haven asset in February and March, and there's been a strong offshore bid. Um, and I think that that will continue now for some time that you'll see people, there's a lot of, you can't underestimate, mate, how much Western capital is just lazily allocated to you know, China, for example, right? And all what we've seen, Chinese equities have performed abysmally since this crisis began because we've seen global asset managers say, oh my God, if that happened with Russia, this is exactly what the West is going to do with China and Taiwan. So I think... Um, uh, for those non-democratic states, they need other sources of um, capital uh, uh, stability and, and stores of wealth, and and that's probably gold. It's probably um, uh, possibly crypto. Uh, anything that they think is not controlled by um, what they would argue or describe as probably the, the the Western oligarchy, right? You know, we talk about Russian oligarchs. They probably think of the West as oligarchs trying to undermine their despotic regimes. So, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, I haven't actually thought through the point you made uh, much before. Other, I've always been thinking, thinking of it through the lens that you're going to see a huge Western withdrawal of capital from countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, you know, the United Arab Emirates, um, uh, you know, maybe some South American countries like Brazil um, and emerging markets generally because people are having to think much more seriously about what are these countries... Uh, represent in um, you know, civil libertarian and uh, political terms and whether they're comfortable with those risks. But I, I, I agree with you. It's an inflection point. It's really key. And we all need to be thinking about that particular dynamic and, and what it you know, there'll be long-term repercussions. I think you're going to get a rewiring. And we've been talking, we talked about this last time. You know, we talked about you know, um, deglobalization. We talked about decoupling of supply chains. You know, for years we've been predicting that the West would withdraw its supply chains from China, but that's inflationary, but it has to be done because people can't trust China in any way, shape or form. So tell me about what's going on in China at the minute. We're seeing lockdowns in Shanghai. There's noise, Guangzhou, maybe next. From your perspective, are the lockdowns about COVID? Are they about uh, laying another inflationary blow into US as these supply constraints become even greater? Or are they about Z settling scores with various factions inside the CCP and, and the guy running Shanghai's not one of his allies? Or, or, or a mix of all of the above? What's your perspective on what's going on in Shanghai and China more broadly? Well, if Putin only cares about money and power, I think she really only cares about power and control. And, and she's an ideologue. This is, a, I think he's a 60, you know, seven or eight-year-old man. He's 187 years tall. He was a princeling. His father was vice chairman of the CCP and propaganda chief. But his father was put in prison. His half-sister was murdered during the Cultural Revolution. Um, as you know, she was arrested in his uh, teens and lived in a cave, applied to rejoin the CCP, I think, like 17 times and was <clears throat> finally admitted. Um, and he's an absolute ideological warrior, advancing what he calls is uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, um, and and she, I believe, has a is a high, if whereas power. So Putin is your, uh, I think, very conventional, um, pragmatic, um, kleptocrat, and you know he's just a power and money monger. 
Um, she is a much more complex beast. He is a, I think, a fatalist who has a dynastic sense of his own inevitable or inexorable rise, um, who is also immensely ideological, right? So he kind of looks back at the arc of his life from leaving in a cave to being the most powerful man on the planet and you know, probably thinks to himself this was all inevitable. In the same way he thinks the uh, that, that Chinese, you know, he says publicly that um, co conflict, real conflict between capitalism and Chinese socialism is inevitable and that the Chinese will inevitably prevail in the same way that unification with Taiwan is inevitable. Um, you know, for what it's worth, just on that point, we think that there are real risks that uh, China attends some sort of unification with Taiwan over the next decade, and that should be front of mind for everybody. Um, and his preparedness to do uh, or to engage in military conflict to try and uh, retake control of Taiwan will really be heavily influenced by what we do, um, what the US and, and the Western Alliance does in the Indo-Pacific. So what military assets we put in place and how, um, how, how convincingly we can dissuade him and deter him from that. But I think, um, you know, the lockdowns for me, without having much idiosyncratic expertise on this, what I would say is a few things. He, she sold the CCP's prosperity post-COVID on being the country that dealt with COVID better than any other country on the, on the planet. Um, but unfortunately, Sinovac seems to be a very uh, weak vaccine. Um, the rollout has been, um, I think, you know, only partially effective. Um, you know, the number of you know, booster shots, I think, is, is you know, comparatively low uh, relative to countries like Australia. Uh, the proportion of the elderly population that are fully inoculated is likewise very low compared to Australia, I understand. Um, and the efficacies are much lower. Uh, and, you know, she, what I think we see with she is he makes massive mistakes. His whole reign since 2012 has just been, I think, one ham-fisted mistake after the next. The only thing he's done particularly well is modernise his military and very aggressively in an imperialistic fashion expand his territorial claims by building those artificial islands in the South China Sea and then launching into territorial disputes with everybody. He's been very, very good at industrial scale espionage, the likes of which we've never seen before globally. Um, you know, he's encircling Australia right now with a string of military bases. You know, he's got uh, ba military bases, ports and runways for his uh, bombers and fighter jets that he's trying to put in, um, you know, all throughout Oceania, Fiji, PNG, uh, Solomon Islands and other places uh, where, you know, he's within uh, striking distance of Australia and he's doing that globally. So, so I think on a military, he, he, people have perennially underestimated his military aims, ambitions and the, the, the speed with which they've modernised their military. Um, but in all other domains, he seems to have engaged in continual hubristic overreach. So whereas Putin has had this one big fail that he is quickly error corrected from, like really quickly. I mean, we, he couldn't have done a better job at sort of you know, doing the 180 degree turn. She constantly engages in hubristic overreach and he's very slow to error correct. An example would be trying to economically coerce Australian submission. So this, you know, he basically tried to uh, bully us into passivity, passivity uh, by basically blocking all of our key export markets other than iron ore. Um, so coal, beef, wine, wheat, everything. Um, and, um, and you know, he, as one of our China experts said, he picked the wrong prime minister and Scott Morrison at the wrong time uh, in the wrong country. As you and I and others, we're all you know, parochial Aussies, know one thing Australians, I don't think, respond 
on a visceral level at all well to is bullying. We're a very egalitarian culture. It's a very equal kind of culture. Um, you know, the reason Australian customer service is so piss poor is we don't like subjugating you know, ourselves to one another. So if you have stayed in an Australian hotel, it's a very different experience to staying in you know, most other, uh, or in many other hotels around the world uh, without generalising too much. Obviously, there are great hotels. But, but this is, this, you know, the, the, the attempt to uh, economically submit Australia and force us to bend the knee was an unambiguous failure because we just pivoted our export markets. As we actually did very successfully in the late 1990s Asian crisis, um, and the agility of the Australian economy was amazing. And we've thrived, right? You know, we just sell coal to other places and sell our wine elsewhere. Yeah, sure, there are short-term hits and certain sec- sectors suffered. Um, but, but you know, we, we, we've, uh, I think, uh, um, been very successful ever since. So my point is that in that case study, rather than recognising, again, the writing on the wall, that this coercion was a failure and adjusting, he's done nothing. He just kind of continues. And the problem for Xi is Australia has created an incredibly important precedent for the rest of the world of how you can uh, resist this oppression and stand up to these, these, these you know, despotic bullies. So I think, to answer, that's a long-winded way of saying that I think um, for him the lockdowns are, on the one hand, some uh, misguided attempt to eradicate the virus. He doesn't seem to understand that's not possible, point one. Just look at New Zealand. Um, point two, uh, it's a Trojan horse for further control uh, and ensuring that his ability to subjugate the, po- the population is, is sort of, you know, beyond doubt and without question. So he's used the whole COVID crisis um, to create a vastly more controlled society uh, inside China's borders and obviously to um, eliminate dissent and criticism. And this is one of the problems that both Putin and Xi have is they create such an informational vacuum around themselves that you don't get rapid feedback um, that is conflicting with their own views and that allows them to organically self-correct. They're sort of living in that informational bubble until it just becomes overwhelming and someone has to deliver the bad news and hopefully they're not next. That's a pretty uh, that's good a place anywhere to finish, Chris. I think we've tackled, uh, tackled bonds, we've tackled China, Russia, and even managed to offend the Australian hospitality industry. So I think we've, uh, <laughs> I think we've nailed it. Mate, on a serious note, really appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're up incredibly early and I, I love getting to sit down with you. So thanks very much. Thanks, brother. Thanks, guys. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.